Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. There are few areas in which China is more competitive than in the field of electric vehicles or EVs. Wang Changfu, the billionaire owner of the car maker BYD, has declared that the time has come for Chinese brands to demolish the old legends of the auto world. In fact, BYD now surpasses Tesla as the new worldwide leader in fully electric vehicle sales. This striking development underlines the huge importance of understanding China when it comes to business. So what issues are likely to come up in the boardrooms of US companies over the next few months? I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Mercy Kuo, Executive Vice President and Geopolitical Risk Advisor at Pamir Consulting a global risk intelligence firm in Metro Washington, D.C. Mercy, welcome to China in Context. Pleasure to join you, Duncan. Well, shall we start then with electric vehicles? It's an area in which China has excelled. What do you think has been the key to its success? Well, electric vehicles are a strategic industry for China's economy. And as with solar panels, Chinese state subsidies for its indigenous EV sector really are a key factor to its success. More than 200 billion yuan, approximately US uh, 28 billion US dollars was spent on EV subsidies and tax breaks in China over the 2009 to 2022 period. In 2022, the country sold more than 6 million EVs accounting for half of all sales globally. Uh, according to analysis by London-based China Dialogue. Right. Well, we had uh, um, uh, Isabel Hilton from China Dialogue as a guest on the uh, podcast the other day. I'm interested to know, though, this issue of subsidies. I mean, this is one of the controversial points, isn't it? So uh, why is China subsidizing this industry? Well, I think it is important to just understand the really there's a context here because there's a strategic competition going on. Uh, so if we understand the broader strategic context of how China is positioning itself as a strategic competitor for American companies, then we'll understand why the subsidies, because it's basically a state priority. Technological advancement became a paramount priority for the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state. So uh, as we know, MiG-2025 targets 10 strategic sectors, aerospace, agricultural machines, AI and robotics, electric vehicles. And I wanna underscore that to your question, energy equipment, information technology, maritime equipment and shipping, new materials, advanced railway transportation, and biopharma and high-tech medical devices. So it is a EVs are a strategic sector within that plan and the investment going into it. So the state does want to ensure that it's uh, it's a success. Well, I think it has been a success, actually. And I'll tell you a little story. I was in one of the most expensive parts of London the other day, Mayfair. And uh, there's no reason really why to, se to sell cars in Mayfair. Nobody needs a car there, but they do have uh sales rooms for very expensive vehicles so rolls royce uh lotus 
Uh, they've got big sales rooms there. And now BYD with this uh, luxury electric car on display in an incredibly expensive location. That's in London. But uh, how is this viewed by the American corporations? We look at this in the context of right uh, Wang Chuanfu's BYD and Elon Musk's Tesla. There's competition for global market share. And this is really a salient example of just uh, overall competition in this industry. So, of course, the United States, American uh, producers, they're watching this, but they're also seeing what the U.S. government is doing also to help with subsidies and tax breaks to help uh, American industries become EV uh, EV companies be more competitive. And that's actually been one of the characteristics of the Biden administration, hasn't it? This uh, this government support through tax breaks and subsidies and so on uh, through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Is that in response to what China's been doing, do you think? I think to a large part, yes. The, the U.S. government recognizes that if U.S. companies cannot be competitive, then China will dominate. The U.S. government will continue to see this in the context of this strategic competition going on. Um, and also, it's this view that the if we look at the business implications of it, it's not just the cars itself, the EVs, but also part of the broader EV discussion is growing investment in EV charging infrastructure. There will be developments in these areas, particularly around uh, the potential benefits to the environment, evolution in uh, consumer usage trends, data analytics, the energy production mix, and how the grid has to adapt to changes in usage. And obviously how this might offer a model for Western transport planners or Western firms who might be interested to participate in this sector in China. Well, that's a very interesting point because, of course, uh, it's very much easier to set up uh, charging points for electric vehicles in a big crowded city like Shanghai than it is in rural Alaska or Alabama. But let's consider some of the other risk factors. I mean, one important point is that people who work for international companies in China are sometimes detained on charges of espionage, and it's very hard for them to receive a fair trial. Why do you think that's happening? Let me just say this. Every year, U.S. companies lose between 200 to 600 billion in revenue, resulting from Chinese intellectual property theft. This is according to U.S. National Counterintelligence and Security Center. So China's industrial espionage activities have spanned um, approximately the past 20 years and have intensified in recent years as U.S.-China strategic competition has escalated. So the U.S. and China have been engaged in a tech race that has over time evolved into a tech war during this period. So as China seeks self-sufficiency in critical technologies, the U.S. concurrently is pursuing policies of de-risking critical dependencies on China. The Chinese understand this, therefore the Chinese central authority has therefore accelerated efforts to secure foreign technology through illicit and illicit means. Let me put it this way. So in China, trade secrets are considered state secrets. 
which could be arbitrarily defined given the ambiguity of China's national security laws. So if Chinese authorities at the national, provincial, or local level suspect that Chinese trade secrets could be compromised, they carry out dawn raids, exit bans, detentions, and other forms of enforcement, usually targeting foreign entities, individuals, uh, or Chinese nationals working for foreign a company, as we saw in last year's clampdown on foreign firms, including the Mince Group, Bain and & Company, and CapVision. Well, that's a fascinating answer, Mercy. So you're often in discussions with American executives. What advice do you offer on that issue? It's really important for U.S. and other foreign companies to get smart on China, specifically to understand China's business risk environment, legal and regulatory frameworks, supply chain and sourcing vulnerabilities, insider risk, and increasingly geopolitical risks that impact bilateral business relations. Business executives should also assess and align their China risk strategy with their enterprise's overall risk management strategy. So for example, conducting scenario planning exercises, preparing contingency plans for evacuation of personnel in the event of a conflict, and updating crisis communication are really different dimensions of developing a China risk strategy. And I want to underscore here, with geopolitical uncertainty growing, the challenge for business leaders is really to optimize opportunities while concurrently mitigate risks. And that's what we seek to do when advising corporate decision makers. Make the most of these opportunities and their associated trade-offs. Because we understand trading with and in China is a reality for most multinationals. And corporate leaders will want, and rightly so, to find their equilibrium on the opportunity and risk scale. Well, you made a very interesting point there, Mercy. You said that uh, companies should be prepared to evacuate their staff from China in the event of conflict. So that brings up another area which comes up extensively in discussion about China, possible conflict on the Taiwan Strait. Can any company mitigate against such a risk? Actually, yes, companies can mitigate risk. On a fundamental level, it behooves executive leaders to really build consensus on identifying, well, what is risk? What is the risk to their company? And articulating the nature, scope, and impact of a given risk on the company's assets, personnel, physical security, reputation, and market share. So once there's internal agreement on, let's just say, the hierarchy of risks, then the company's crisis management team can monitor risk and develop action plans for exigent circumstances, all while seeking to optimize opportunities in China, where many firms have understandably committed to invest and operate for the long term. So for example, you asked a conflict in the Taiwan Strait could emerge in various forms. It could be kinetic, it could be cyber, it could be an economic blockade. So designing risk scenarios could be a helpful exercise in thinking through plausible outcomes, challenging one's own assumptions, and then assessing implications 
for the company's supply chains, brand reputation, and evacuation planning. Well, I know that you're based in Washington, but I'd also like to mention Europe. It's not a balanced relationship between Europe and China when it comes to business. I was reading an article recently which said that for every five containers shipped from China to the EU, only one goes back the other way. It's exported to China. Um, and, and it also had some figures for rare earths, 98% dependency for Europe, nearly 80% for antibiotics. And when it comes to solar panels, which you mentioned earlier, about 90% of global production's in Chinese hands. That suggests to me that the idea of decoupling from China is almost impossible. Well, the EU and the US are pursuing policies of what they call de-risking rather than decoupling, de-risking critical dependencies on China, those seemingly impossible it does make sound business sense. Of course, it's on a case-by-case -case basis for each company. But uh, the, the reality is that U.S.-China strategic competition will continue to escalate. And EU-China relations, at least as long as they remain uh, strained, then there is a need to consider uh, what de-risking looks like in practice. Some foreign companies have implemented a policy of in China, for China, or China for China, in which they're operating and catering solely to the China market. Uh, the fact that China has become a dominant player for sourcing and production of the sectors referenced in this conversation could, should also be a wake-up call to corporate America and corporate Europe regarding the degree to which China is so integrated into the global economy and what that portends for its ubiquity in other strategic sectors. Well, thank you, Mercy, for your insightful and meticulously researched answers. I'm sure the executives appreciate your advice in the boardroom. That was Dr. Mercy Kuo, Vice President of Pamir Consulting, a global risk intelligence firm on the line there from Washington. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.